Hello, friends. We're now roughly halfway through the first season of Raised Sports. Our first stories have been all about people who have had their lives directly affected, turned upside down by this issue of concussions and CTE, brain injuries in football. So as we move forward and take a look at some other angles around this issue, I thought it was the perfect time to look back and give ourselves a bit of a history lesson on all of this. So to that end, I've brought in an expert. His name is Stephen Casper, and he is a professor of history at Clarkson University in Potsdam, New York. Professor Casper has a PhD in the history of medicine, as well as a Bachelor of Science in neuroscience and biochemistry. He is the author of multiple papers on the history of neuroscience, as well as an upcoming book on the cultural history of head injury, titled Punch Drunk and Dementia, A Modern History of Concussion, 1870 to 2012. Yes, it goes back much further than you probably realized. Professor Casper is also a retained expert for the plaintiffs in concussion litigation against the National Hockey League. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Casper and that you find the information as enlightening as I did. Thank you for joining me, Professor Casper. Uh, let's get right to the questions. Now, I think there's a perception that our knowledge and study of concussions and CTE in sports is a rather recent thing. When did the scientific community first start talking about these issues? Well, I'm delighted to be here, Bob, and um, I think this is a really great question, and it's one that I get asked a lot. Um, in general, uh, the study of concussions and CTE is um, quite a bit older than I think uh, most people recognize. Concussions have been studied um, for well over a century, and concussions as they related to sports began to be studied in the late 19th century. And in fact, the first description of CTE came out of the work of a pathologist by the name of Harrison Marland, who was studying um, the condition in punch-drunk boxers. And his very famous article, which was published in 1928, was called Punch-Drunk. And in there, when he described what he was seeing um, in his uh, autopsies, um, he described the appearance of what he termed traumatic encephalopathy. And subsequently, uh, it's very clear that Martlin had in mind uh, what subsequently came to be called chronic traumatic encephalopathy. The word chronic uh, was meant to indicate that there, the cause of the um, lesions and injuries to the brain was the, um, was the result of recurrent uh, blows to the head. So that's what the word chronic actually signaled. Um, and so... I think uh, the scientific community has been speaking about this for quite a long time. I think, um, and largely I've, I've tried to uh, point to this in some of my publications, I think there was largely a consensus on um, what was causing CTE by about the 1950s. So it's decades old. That's amazing. What, why do you think there is such a disconnect between the public perception and the reality in this regard? Well. That's a really complicated story, and it's basically part of what I'm writing my, my book about. I, I think there are, um, first of all, the public does not, as a rule, keep up on the state of the art of medicine as it evolves. And so there's always a little bit of a disconnect between what doctors know and what clinicians are doing in practice and public perceptions. And I think in the world of head injury, this has been um, particularly true. And there have been, over the last 
50 years, multiple efforts, I think, to try to educate the public about the risks of head injury of, of any kind, and especially of repeated head injury. And it's not entirely clear that many of those public health campaigns have uh, succeeded. So that's one, one uh, component, that just simply the, the public isn't paying attention in the way that, that clinicians do. But there are other elements to this. So the um, labels the doctors use have changed uh, over time. So concussion is the broad term, and it uh, refers to a blow to the head that produces uh, a dazing effect or a kind of automatism or some other um, symptom. It may be uh, uh, included in that some kind of loss of consciousness. It may not include that. Um, people talk about it colloquially as having their bell rung. Mm -hmm. And it does seem um, true that the public hasn't necessarily put together that word concussion or those symptoms of concussion with uh, another word that began to be used in the uh, 1990s, which is mild traumatic brain injury, or uh, MTBI. And so it may be that the different labels that were being used there have sort of moved public perception um, further away from clinical reality. And so I think that's another, that's another potential source. And then um, the public hears messages over and over again today um, in the media and, and in places that are um, trying to communicate about this. It says things like, um, you know, the study of concussion is still in its infancy, uh, or a study of CTE is still in its infancy. And I think what that communicates to the public wrongly is that the scientific community communities only really begun to talk about these issues. And, and that's just really not true. The, the community has been talking about them, as I said, for decades. Um, but when um, this is sort of presented, it's, it, I think people are trying to present it as vanguard science. And so that expression that it's in its infancy gets told to them. And then I think they take away um, the, the sort of wrong message from that. So those are just three examples. I think mm -hmm. we could actually point to others if we wanted to. So we've pretty much known this, this known about this for so many decades now, going back to the 1920s. How has our knowledge progressed over the, over the years? Well, it depends upon how you're understanding that idea of progress. If um, you're talking about the clinical observation and the diagnostic and prognostic outcomes, that really hasn't changed a lot over the years. Um, if you go back to the 1870s or 1880s, what doctors were writing about concussions and their their long-term effects seems pretty constant with what even to this day doctors are saying about those matters. What What's changed is that after about the 1930s and into the 1940s, we began to understand these injuries in biophysical and biomechanical terms. And in uh, as we did that, we began to understand um, the spectrum of head injury, I think, more sharply and, and more mathematically than we had. And that was work that was being done particularly in, um, by, by workers in, who were doing the design of automotive um, safety uh, options in cars. That's one example. And then 
in the late 50s and 60s, we began to have, I think, um, more techniques available through the life sciences that helped us understand the biochemistry of concussions. It helped us to understand, in some instances, the genetics. Um, and so we moved from uh, an understanding of cause as the blow, of, blow to the head uh, to an understanding that that blow to the head had secondary effects that led to neurodegeneration, uh, neurodestruction, white matter stretching. Um, and it's been in that refinement, much of which goes back to the 70s and 80s, uh, hmm. that we might say we see some progress in understanding um, what's happening at the most reductive level. But I think in sort of practical terms, what a doctor is talking about and what a patient is experiencing, that remains pretty unchanged over the last um, 150 years. And in fact, um, what's recommended uh, as treatment options also has been fairly stable. People have tried slightly different things here and there. People are trying new things now. Um, but but largely, that has been fairly constant. And you mentioned genetic involvement in this, and there, you sometimes hear contradictory voices that, that maybe question the connection between head injuries in, in football or other sports, and maybe some people might assert that uh, some people are genetically predisposed to getting CTE, um, or that they don't really know, do we really know that they're getting uh, degenerative brain disease from football specifically or sports specifically. But what, what does the scientific research tell us about the connection and how far back does that go? Well, historically, um, there have been, I think, efforts to account for differentiated outcomes from concussions and recurrent concussions. And when people have tried to account for these differences in outcomes, they have investigated a whole world of possibilities. Maybe the injury was more severe than it appeared. Maybe the person had genetic predispositions. And maybe the person um, would have developed some kind of um, psychiatric condition anyway, and that it was just a coincidental combination that brought these things together. And in some sense, uh, that kind of skepticism is factually um, healthy for um, the science. But often in practice, what happened is it was these arguments were used to generate a kind of blame the victim uh, argument. And in doing so, the purpose was to, to you know, try to reduce um, the gravity of the head injury exposure or the brain injury exposure. And, and so whenever one encounters these arguments, one, I think, historically is, is looking at them and saying, well, you know, is, is this a, a sort of serious question or is it being asked um, in order to call into question the legitimacy of the patient? And historically, patients uh, who have had brain injuries or head injuries have been called into um, their legitimacy has been called into question frequently because head injuries historically have been compensable injuries. What do you mean by compensable injury? So a, a compensable injury is something that in a trial situation um, or in a workers' compensation claim mm -hmm. um, it can result in a payment to an injured party. 
So if uh, a construction worker takes a fall, one of the questions that obviously initially would come up in, say, like the 19th century was, was the worker at fault? And if the worker was at fault, then um, that might have not resulted in some kind of workman workers' compensation to to um, that construction worker. But over time, what happened is we institutionally developed frameworks that just covered this, and and so those were those were usually insurance frameworks, and so the worker would would get. Um, some form of compensation. And then the question was how much and for how long. And so these other questions just, just flowed from that. And often the place where that was debated was not between um, a doctor and the patient or, it was, or a doctor and an employer. It was debated in the courts. And at that moment, um, these sort of blame the victim arguments began to, I think, uh, appear and then they would reappear uh, every now and then in the the medical literature um, and so it's really it emerges in a very special sort of context where where people are trying um, historically to just make uh, somebody who has a claim of some kind uh, look like they might not be trustworthy and and this is a very old history. I mean, you could go, uh, the, the, it begins with actually a lot of railroad cases in the late 19th century, um, both railroad workers and then people who are hurt in railroad accidents who then um, seek out um, redress for their injuries. Uh, and then from there, it spreads um, to you know, most industrial sectors, from mining to police officers. And then with the emergence of the automobile, uh, it becomes a, a real issue because um, uh, concussive injuries and worse frequently happen in automobile accidents. And then at that point, insurers are particularly interested in questions of liability. So that's, that's the context in which we come back to your original question, that we have to look at these discussions of genetics. Now, um, I'd just like to actually answer that because, of course, there have been studies that did point out um, that there were genetic predispositions. And, and uh, um, I think most uh, famous example of that was a study that was published only in the late 1990s by Barry Jordan and others that had found um, that what's called the apolipoprotein um, uh, uh, E4 allele was associated with um, greater occurrence of chronic traumatic brain injury uh, in boxing. And so one of the hypotheses that um, sort of circulated with that was that the people who were getting CTE-like symptoms had um, this, E4, um, this E4 allele. And what people took away from that seems to have been different different things. So so one effort was to say, I think, that, well, it's actually this genetic predisposition that's the cause of these, these pathologies we see in CTE. And then another group, I think, saw um, this as helping to just explain how the risk and vulnerability of um, uh, blows to the head was spread across whole populations. Um, the uh, E4 um, uh, allele is actually associated with a lot of different neurodegenerative diseases. It's, it's, uh, it only shows up in about 15% of, um, of population, so it's quite uncommon. And so this finding is a really important finding because it does help us to understand 
the um, underlying architecture of, of vulnerability in, at the level of the brain and the neurons and, and um, even more reductively at the, at the level of the, the proteins and membranes that make up the nervous system. Um, but this is all sort of presumes that people walk around knowing what their genotype is. And I right. don't know what my genotype is, and I don't think most people know what their right. genotype is. And so that's, that's where this idea, this, this hypothesis gets tricky. If you're pointing to it as a causal explanation, then the sort of rebuttal might be to say, well, are, are we going out of our way to actually tell people what their genotypes are? And should we, should we go and test like all high school players before they sign up for a collision sport and, and, and find out if they have this and then say to them they can't play? And since nobody's taking those steps, um, it would seem that, you know, that we're not serious and that we shouldn't be blaming people for not knowing. Uh, and then, of course, it still requires a hit to the head to trigger whatever it is that leads to this association being visible. So you still have to get hit in the head. That's right. still a, a pretty important and significant part of the story. Um, so I think you know, that's the context that I, as a historian, am looking at that uh, sort of scientific, um, scientific finding, and others like it. It's, it's, and I think we should do everything we can to see, see these hypotheses and observations as they emerge um, not as a way to then discredit people who are suffering. Hello, friends. Bob Harkins taking a moment to tell you once again about our friends at Cool Fire Studios, a wonderful graphic design, printing, and art studio. If you need a t-shirt, business cards, posters, anything to make a splash, Cool Fire Studios artists can make something special just for you. And we're not talking about just slapping logos on t-shirts. We're talking about really cool and unique artwork, which you'll see a perfect example of when we reveal our official Raised Sports t-shirts coming soon. So watch for those. And in the meantime, check out Cool Fire Studios. That's cool with a K. Coolfirestudios.com. Now back to the show. Another interesting thing uh, that you've written about is kind of the rise of sports medicine in the late 90s and sort of becoming the study of sports concussions being sort of uh, pushed into like a separate category from other concussions. And you you compared it at one point I read to the marketing of light cigarettes. Now, why is why is that? Why is that important? And, and what is the resulting impact for treatment of athletes? Well, the brain doesn't know the difference in terms of how it's been hit. So the mind might be aware, right, that I am standing in some arena and this is where I and my body was hurt. But the brain isn't making that kind of differentiation. It, it the, a, a concussion, so far as the brain is concerned, is a concussion. It's not context dependent. And the reason that's important is that um, when you start to see the usage of the word sports concussion or sports-related concussion showing up in the primary literature um, really starts in the 1990s. Um, it often is being used by doctors and clinicians as a way of actually um, not looking at the wider literature that was already published and out there on concussions and other types of brain injury. 
And so what it, it what it served to do is it served to create this sort of restriction of options, right? I the researchers were studying sports concussions, they weren't studying concussions in car accidents, or they weren't studying concussions as a result of assaults, or they weren't looking at concussions in, say, the military. And that that separation, um, whether or not it was by design, I mean, I, I can't say, but it, what, it, what it does and what it appears to do is it appears to suggest that concussions are context-dependent. And they're not. They just are selective differences of risk depending upon where you are. So the, the risk in a car is going to be different than, say, risk in uh, a football arena. Mm-hmm. And in that sense is what I think it's, it's the marketing of the light cigarettes. I mean, it's, it's very clear when you look at the history of um, big tobacco. One of the things that the tobacco companies were trying to do is they were, they were trying to make the public believe that there was a difference between and across cigarettes in, in terms of the risks associated with smoking. I don't know if that kind of cynicism was what was in people's minds when they began to talk about sports concussions or sports-related concussions. I, I, in fact, I even sort of doubt that. Mm-hmm. But the messaging ends up not being very useful to communicating to people about the risks. And it makes sports concussions sound different, and they're not. And it also means that then the findings that, uh, from the literature in other arenas is salient for understanding um, uh, concussions that take place in collision sports. And that also the reverse is true, that our findings about concussions that take place in sports arenas can be related to other spheres. Mm-hmm. And if you go back to this originally, um, when the idea was, was first being um, sort of suggested that we could study uh, collision athletes, usually in NCAA schools, um, in order to understand um, concussion better. When, when that idea was first sort of suggested, it was done actually in the context of, of the idea that it would actually inform about um, concussion in other areas. So that translation was was already understood and it was in place. Uh, the sort of notable people here to mention are, are the studies that Jeffrey Barth was doing at the University of Virginia in the 19 in the 1980s, um, and I think probably the person who put together the most pioneering statement about this was was James Kelly uh, in the late 1990s, and and basically they were arguing that you could use football. Um, arenas or other sites of collision sports as, as laboratories for studying the phenomenon of concussion. But then what happened in practice was that that sort of got left out and sports concussion became a novel entity unto itself. And that's where I think this sort of notion of it as a, as a kind of comparatively to a light cigarette really blossoms. It's, it, 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 the messaging ends up being wrong and it ends up making them sound like they're just different entities and, and they're not. And that might also play into this whole idea that this is a new phenomenon, right? But um, now... Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, that's, that's, that's important, right? Because if you're... And, and even it just sort of comes down to very basic u- utilization of library resources, right? If, if uh, somebody who's a graduate student um, or, or is doing early medical research on the topic 
set, sets out to do their investigation by using sports-related concussion or sports concussion as their search terms, what that will do is it will restrict their options very quickly, and they may never look at it in the wider context. And, and in that sense, then, when somebody says, well, this is all new, right, Mm-hmm. there's an element of truth to it, and it may even be true to them, but that's only because they've restricted the options so much they can't see how that work is meant to inform work in other areas and vice versa. That's interesting. Now, you've, you're have you saying that uh, you don't believe that th- this sort of separating of sports medicine from other studies of concussions is sinister. There's anything sinister to it, but this does kind of transition into something you have written and I'm, and, and I'm that there is evidence and I'm quoting you here. Uh, there is evidence from the 1990s of intense dim- disinformation campaigns seeking to minimize the risk posed by concussion injuries. What are some examples of this? What did you mean by that? Well, this is uh, unfortunately not specifically my work. It's been the finding of investigative journalists, um, particularly journalists who were working for the New York Times uh, back in the um, early to mid-2000s. And then there was a congressional report uh, on this subject. And, and, and basically both of uh, these different um, avenues of work on this found that um, the National Football League's um, MTBI committee had been engaging in um, uh, work and publications and uh, sort of research efforts to shape um, the scientific and clinical record in in a way that appears to have been largely favorable to to corporate interests. That committee began its work, um, came into existence really in the late mid-1990s, and since um, that period, then what happened is they they gathered together uh, information. They were ostensibly doing it in in ways that were above board, and what actually appears to have happened was bad science, flawed methods, irregular data procedures, um, and I think broadly a, a poor exploration of biases and controls over conflicts of interest. And, and this just sort of enervated the whole program of research, so much so that I think um, a lot of people um, just kind of now walk away from any of the findings uh, of, that, of that group. Um, but these were published, and of course because uh, they were published findings and they were published in good, good journals, they were extensively cited. And so that work then shaped a lot of the underlying architecture of what we might describe as the sports-related concussion literature. And, and it, it, in a way, right, it was, it was always trying to produce um, a slice of the scientific re- record that could put forward a favorable spin or at least an equivocal spin on what might have otherwise been bad news for an industry where head injury exposure is... Um, is fairly high. Um, when those efforts to exert some kind of um, influence in the record, and you know, it, it's it's not clear how much influence these things had. I mean, citation patterns will only tell you so much. So, mm-hmm. I, I don't think we should even here. I don't know that we should necessarily argue that it was very effective, um, but it was certainly in play. And when those efforts didn't seem to work, we know from 
um, Dr. Ben and Amala's personal story that the scientists who were involved with it would also and were more than willing to go in on discrediting campaigns and to engage in bullying uh, to try to ostracize people who weren't producing work that favored the picture that, that they wanted to, to generate. And so that's just a really unfortunate dimension of the historical record as a historian sees it. And, and it actually raises some very interesting questions about how you, you tell the history of this time because it, it, it in, in a sense, it makes everyone sound just very conspiratorial, but we know that it was actually happening. And what we cannot really assess from the medical record was just how widespread and effective it was. And of course, I'm only looking at medical publications. And so it's, it may be right that the medical publications aren't even a particularly useful source in understanding uh, in understanding this. It's worth saying that one of the things that um, the congressional report that came out in 2016 was concerned about was that the NFL was trying to selectively create pressure on people who and agencies and institutions that were receiving its funding. Um, and so there, there are right explicit forms of evidence in the record that I look at, but there's indications that there were other types of pressures that um, are, were not written down. So this kind of leads me into my final question here, Professor Casper, and thank you again for joining me here and sharing all your knowledge with us. Is there any reason that team doctors or officials from entities like the NFL or the NCAA should not be aware of so much data there is that exists and how far back it stretches in history? In short, no. I really cannot think of any reason. It, the record is there for anyone to read. Um, at this point, to read the record does require some effort, um, but it's an extensive record. And I think it's it's worth saying that you can identify in this record the classic pieces going all the way back to um, the late 1890s. And you can do that because people cite each other across time and space over and over again, and they always come back to uh, many of the same articles. And that's still a lot of articles. Um, and, and there's more to be read than even those. But if you just even read the classic pieces and you, you read them in order, um, you can see very clearly how we ended up where we've ended up today. and the picture is worrying. And uh, I think it would worry uh, any parent who was thinking about putting, uh, allowing their kids to play collision sports. I think it would worry any patient uh, to learn that their doctor wasn't sort of being forthright about um, what that record says. And I think any employer in any industry has an obligation to communicate what those risks are, no matter no matter how often they happen or, or, or how common they are, I think the important point is that the record indicates that they can happen. And there is actually in that record very clear explanations for why it happens. Um, are those perfect explanations? Do we know every single detail about uh, how these neurodegenerative processes set in from the experience of recurrent concussions? Do we know every detail about what happens in acute episodes of concussions? No. But 
we have actually in that record sufficient information to create um, an informed understanding in any person, whether it's a doctor or a, a patient or a parent who's just learning about this information for the first time. And, and I think what I would encourage right here is more efforts to be transparent, to, to be really clear with people and, and explain to them what the risks are and try to get them to think about things like, like what personality change means or what increased risk for dementia means. And I think when I look at the whole history of brain injury over the last 150 years, what I see over and over again is an effort not to be forthright with people. And I think people just deserve honesty. And you know, doctors can caution people that this honesty is not destiny. We have no idea what will happen to any one individual. What's important to understand is that we have an idea what will happen to some. That's absolutely right. And, and you know, throughout the production of this podcast and this show, I've heard enough stories of people who have gone through a lot. And and so I really thank you for coming on and talking about sort of the the history of it and the science of it and sharing your knowledge with us here today. It was my pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm happy to uh, chat with you about it. Thank you, Professor Casper. If you'd like to hear more from Professor Casper about the history of concussions and TTE, you can find him on Twitter, posting regularly on the topic. His handle is at the Neurotimes. Don't forget to visit our friends at Cool Fire Studios and to join our Raised Sports Club over at Patreon.com. I'm Bob Harkins. This is Raised Sports. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode. Have a great day.